Hi, I'm Rick Schwartz. And I'm Ebony Monet. Welcome to Amazing Wildlife, where we explore unique stories of wildlife from around the world and uncover fascinating animal facts. This podcast is a production of iHeartRadio and San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, an international nonprofit conservation organization that oversees the San Diego Zoo and Safari Park. And we have a great show for you today. We're talking about one of the smallest mammals in North America, the Pacific Pocket Mouse. You'll learn interesting facts, and coming up, we'll talk about the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance's efforts to save it. Pacific pocket mice are the smallest mouse species in North America, but Rick, I was surprised to learn they get their name from something else. Yes, it's true. Some people even think they're so small they could fit in your pocket, and that's how they got their name. But in all honesty, the Pacific pocket mouse got its name from external fur-lined cheek pouches in which it carries seeds, their primary food source. These pouches are different than what you see in squirrels or hamsters, since the pouches for those animals are inside the mouth. So where do these tiny mice live? Well, Ebony, the Pacific pocket mice are very specific on where they can thrive. They're a species that lives in our own backyard right here in Southern California. The population we specifically work with lives in Laguna Coast Wilderness Park and at the Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton. They live in a very specific coastal ecosystem that is no further than two and a half miles from the beach, usually in sandy areas known as coastal strands, coastal dunes, and coastal sage scrub made up of low-growing plants that do well in coastal lowlands. So close to the Pacific Ocean. Yes. So these tiny mammals are small, but I understand they're important. Rick, what's the importance of the Pacific pocket mouse for the environment? That's a question we actually hear about a lot of small rodents, because I think we as humans tend to look at rodents as sometimes being a pest. But in all honesty, small rodents like the Pacific pocket mouse play a very important role in the ecosystem. They are a great food source for many other species, but also specifically to the pocket mouse. Because their main diet is seeds, they will spend all night collecting those seeds. They'll eat some of them, but they'll stash the rest in underground chambers for future use. Now, of course, they don't eat all of them for future use. Some of those seeds will eventually sprout. And so they are actually sort of a maybe a little agricultural specialist for their environment. So very important for the plants also, than which, of course, all animals rely on in that ecosystem. So what threats do Pacific pocket mice face in the wild? Unfortunately, one of the biggest challenges the Pacific pocket mouse faces right now is the loss of habitat. You know, we mentioned they love that beachfront property. That swath of, of land that runs along the coast is prime real estate for humans as well. We like to develop it and live there. So we have a challenge for these little mice, finding areas where they can live safely. So, Rick, just how small are Pacific pocket mice? Oh, believe it or not, they are one of the smallest living mammals in North America. They weigh in at a whopping, are you ready for this, six grams. Or if you are more of an ounces person, that's 0.04 ounces. So they're pretty tiny. And speaking of tiny, too, when doing some research on this, I found that scientists also know for a fact their little footprints are only three millimeters wide. That's smaller than half a centimeter. I can just imagine a scientist trying to measure a Pacific pocket <laughs> mouse's foot. How exactly do we know for a fact that the Pacific pocket mouse's foot is just that small? 
Yeah, they don't actually pick them up and, and try to fit them for shoes or anything like that. They Part of the research in which they do to find out more information about the species, they set up some tubes out in the wild with a little bit of food for them. And in that tube then, it's what they refer to as a passive method of measuring. In that tube, there is a little bit of ink and a little bit of paper. And so as they go through to get, retrieve the little treat that's in that tube for them, they walk right across that and walk back out and they leave a little footprint that can be measured. Wow. So we know they have a unique way of storing their food and they're tiny. Is there anything else that makes the Pacific pocket mouse unique? Well, I think I think this is a fun fact, especially for an animal that's known for living in the coastal areas of Southern California, which we all can agree are usually where people go for a winter break. You know, it's kind of nice and mild. But if in a winter environmental factors are unfavorable, which for the Pacific pocket mouse, that usually means it's been a very dry season. So perhaps not as much food is available. The pocket mouse will hibernate underground until spring brings better conditions for them or, or basically more food from the rains. Uh, but if adequate food supplies are available all year round, the mouse will remain active during the winter. Amazing. Rick, the Pacific pocket mouse has a sort of a comeback story. At one point, they were considered extinct? Yes, Ebony, they do have an amazing comeback story. They were believed to be extinct for 20 years and rediscovered in 1993. So coming up, we will talk about the ongoing efforts of the San Diego Zoo, Wildlife Alliance, and our partners to protect and save them. All right, now it's time for the San Diego Zoo Safari Park Minute, an opportunity for you to learn what's new at the zoo. After more than four decades of successfully reintroducing California condors and other vultures back into their native habitats, San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance is ushering in a new era of vulture conservation. Wildlife care specialists at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park have begun raising the Western Egyptian vulture, an endangered species native to Southern Europe, Asia, and Northern Africa. Did you know the program's first successful hatching came in 2021? Specialists named the hatchling Jamila. It's the first of its kind hatching in North America. Wildlife care specialists use lifelike hand puppets resembling an adult vulture to pass food to Jamila to help her inexperienced parents and to make sure she didn't develop an attachment to humans. We're spotlighting the smallest mammal in North America, the Pacific pocket mouse. San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance scientists have worked to increase populations once found from Los Angeles to the Mexican border. Let's chat now with Dr. Deborah Shire, who leads the San Diego Wildlife Alliance's Pocket Mouse Conservation Program. Dr. Shire, hi. For 20 years, scientists thought Pacific pocket mouse were extinct. How did that happen? And what's their current status? So the species was documented through survey efforts from nine different locations along coastal Southern California from way back in 1894 to 1972. But survey efforts did not find them for 20 years, from 1973 to 1993. And because of that, it was presumed extinct. It was rediscovered during a survey effort in 1993 at the Dana Point Headlands, and then two additional populations were rediscovered on Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton in the mid-1990s. So as far as population size, we really don't have a good estimate for this species. It's really in large part because the species populations go through boom and bust cycles. 
likely in response to precipitation and the resulting vegetation growth. So, for example, in the Dana Point population, there were only two individuals documented in 2005, but by 2012, there were over 75 individuals. To make an educated guess, I would say across the species range, there are likely just a few hundred individuals remaining right now in three extant populations. And because we've been experiencing drought years for years here in Southern California, reproduction has been extremely limited. So what other threats do they face? Well, they're a primary prey species for a variety of predators in the area. Um, And while they are adapted to dealing with native predators, there are a variety of other threats, including non-native predators like the house cat. Most threats that are associated with the Pacific pocket mouse are really driven by the presence of humans. Non-native grasses that were brought in from Europe for agriculture and grazing, night lighting that we put out of our homes, roads, and like I said, the presence of pets associated with our homes like house cats and dogs can be a problem. Now, it doesn't mean that they can't coexist with humans, just that humans really need to change our behavior to be able to coexist with wildlife like the Pacific pocket mouse. So for example, if we you know, manage non-native grasses and try to keep the habitat more native. Keeping our lights off at night and, and our cats inside could also help. Why is the Pacific pocket mouse important? Pacific pocket mice play a really important role in ecosystem function. So they're granivores, which means they're seed eaters, and they're semi-fossorial, meaning that they dig burrows and they live part of their life underground. Because they collect and cache native seeds and they store them away for a later date when food might not be so plentiful, they are thought to be primary seed dispersers of the native plants, which continues plant growth and expands those plants in the native coastal sage scrub ecosystems in which they live. In addition to dispersing native seeds, their digging activities increase soil hydrology and nutrient cycling, which helps those plants thrive. And as I mentioned, they are prey for a variety of species. Almost everything eats them out there, including native owls, terrestrial mammals like bobcats and coyotes, probably skunks, snakes, and even tarantula eat them. So without them, these species wouldn't have as much food to eat. So they're really important for ecosystem function. Can you talk a bit about the reintroduction process and what all goes into that? Absolutely. There were hundreds of surveys done to try to find Pacific pocket mice throughout the historic range of the species. And as I mentioned earlier, there are only three extant populations that remain. And to ensure that a large-scale catastrophic event doesn't wipe out the species, the goal in the recovery plan for the species was to establish 10 viable populations to sort of spread the risk of extinction. But those hundreds of surveys found only three extant populations, so we needed to do population creation in order to reduce the probability of extinction. And 
We've, we've started out trying to determine whether there were enough animals in the extant populations to do a wild-to-wild translocation, but there weren't. There were just not enough animals in the source populations to be able to collect from them and not imperil those populations. So back in 2012, we established a conservation breeding facility for the species at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. We collected 30 individuals and we grew those numbers in the conservation program from 30 to over 100 within a few years. It was a little tricky because the animal is a solitary species, so sort of like a little panda where they are territorial and scent is used to for females to determine which individuals, males, they would like to mate with. So it's, it's sort of tricky. You have to wait for a female to come into estrus and then she has to pick a particular male to breed with. But if she doesn't like him, she might try to kill him. So there's a lot of effort that goes into breeding them, but we grew the ex situ population up to over 100 and allowed us to start reintroducing them into the wild. In 2016, we started those efforts and our first relocation was into Laguna Coast Wilderness Park. So we released 50 that year. And it's not been without its challenges. They are a prey species, as I mentioned. So not only do they have a lot of predators that would like to eat them once we put them out there, but we also have potential competitors. There are several other rodent species in the community that can outcompete them since they're the sort of tiniest guy on the block. But we've been successful. We've learned a lot over the last five, six years, and we're in a place now where we've learned that if we get them out early in the season, the females actually can reproduce in the months right after we release them. So we have wild-born pups at the reintroduction site in the year that we've re- released them, which is very, very exciting. It's one of the first metrics that we use to evaluate reintroduction success survival but then population growth is really important. And in the last year, we managed to get the population to overwinter successfully, and we had reproduction for a second year this last year. So we're we're feeling pretty optimistic about how well we're doing with establishing a new population, so a fourth population on on the landscape. Dr. Shire, um, can you back up a little bit and tell us What exactly is meant by wild-to-wild translocation? Wild-to-wild translocation is just when you collect founders for creating a new population. They can either come from an extant population in the wild, meaning that they're present in the wild, they're already born in the wild, and then you can relocate them to a new site. There are benefits to doing that because those animals are already familiar with all of the important environmental cues that there are in the wild, and they're probably pretty savvy behaviorally, right? They have good survival skills because they were born out there. Animals that are sourced for a relocation from an ex situ population or a human-managed population can also be successful in relocation efforts, but they require extra care and extra preparation. So when we breed them in human care, those animals don't have all of the important environmental cues that the animals that are born in the wild have. We do our best to replicate key environmental cues like 
seasonality through skylights and day length and also availability of you know, scent of conspecifics or heterospecifics or even exposure to some predators in a controlled context. But we might need to, and we have needed to, train them to develop those effective survival skills before they go back out into the wild. So there's a few more steps for, at least for pocket mice, that we need to take in order to make sure that they have effective survival skills before they go into a new site when they're sourced from a a human-managed population. So what all goes into teaching a Pacific pocket mouse how to better survive in the wild, how to detect and avoid predators? So for detecting and avoiding owls, they are um, an aerial predator. And so often animals have a natural overhead fright response. So we just give them a single exposure to an owl on a pulley system that flies over the top of their head and they will jump and avoid and hide in in shelter without any training. But for the snake, it's sort of a different story. What we do in our facility is give them exposure to the snake and we, we pair that exposure with a spray of water. So, and they really hate getting sprayed with water. So when, when they approach a snake, a king snake, we give them a little squirt of water and they go running away. And then we, we test them again with the snake over time to see that they don't continue to approach the snake, that they, they stay farther away, which is our goal. Ebony, I have one more thing that I'd like to share, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah. Often people ask me, why are we saving rodents? And you you sort of alluded to that question a little bit earlier, and I talked about their importance in the ecosystem. And I would just say that while they're not a charismatic megafauna like a, a lion or a rhino that we have at the zoo... They are a part of our history in California, and they I like to think of them as charismatic mini-fauna. And they really play an important role in the ecosystem. And if we lose them, we stand to lose a part of California's natural history and all the beauty and diversity that comes with it. Beautiful answer. Congratulations to you and your team. We've been talking to Dr. Shire with the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. Thanks for telling us more. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and tune into next week's episode in which we bring you the story of the gardening king of the jungle, the gorilla, the largest of all the primates. I'm Ebony Monet. And I'm Rick Schwartz. Thanks for listening. For more information about the San Diego Zoo and San Diego Zoo Safari Park, go to sdzwa.org. Amazing Wildlife is a production of iHeartRadio. Our producer is Nakia Swinton, and our executive producer is Marcy DePina. Our audio engineer and editor is Amita Ganatra. For more shows from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Listener.